Today is Reformation Sunday, and this is a Sunday I normally like to take time to take a look at a little bit of the history of the church, either by looking at some of the characters that were influential in, in the making of the church as it is today, um, or in developing the theology of the church that uh, we have today. And today I want to talk about the book in your hands, or the book in your pews, or the book in your shelf at home um, that we call the Bible. And how we got the Bible to be in English. Uh, and so I want to give just a little bit of a history of the Bible. Um, the Bible is made up of an Old and a New Testament. Spike, you can go to the next slide. I don't have a clicker. The Bible is made of an Old and New Testament. The Old Testament sections are written uh, in the, about 11 or 12 centuries before the birth of Jesus. Malachi, the very last of the Old Testament books, written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. Um, it was written primarily in Hebrew. Hebrew is on the left there. Um, you don't know it, but that Hebrew actually has no vowels. It's all consonants. It's only later that they develop some points and dots and lines that go around it to give you vowels. And both Greek and Hebrew were written like this. So there's no space between words. So you really got to know your Hebrew to be able to read it, because um, you got to be able to determine uh, where the words kind of split. Most Hebrew words have three consonants, and then if it's the, whatever it is, you got another one, and if it's by the, you got another one, but um, so there's anywhere from three to five consonants normally, but imagine trying to, to read that. It was written primarily in Hebrew with, with some other languages um, sort of in there. Um, the New Testament is 27 books, making the total books of the Bible 66. It's written over a much shorter time period, about 90 to 100 years. Earliest works probably by the Apostle Paul. Uh, last works probably by John. Um, and uh, it's written in Greek. You can see Greek on the right, although, again, original Greek would have been... It, it's a little bit easier because it reads left to right. The Hebrew actually reads the opposite way. Um, but there would not have been the spaces in between. Those are added later. And so Old Greek is very, very difficult um, to read. Jesus, uh, Jesus wouldn't have spoken Greek. He would have spoken Hebrew or probably more Aramaic, kind of the common language of the day. Uh, although Paul probably would have written a lot in Greek to his letters. And so we get this Bible, these two testaments, these languages of Greek and Hebrew sort of put together. Um, and Paul has this, some specific words to say about uh, the Bible. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped from every, for every good work. Paul has this view that the scriptures, and remember in Paul's day, he's still writing them, and he's not writing them as scriptures, he's writing them as letters to churches. But he's talking more about the Old Testament. But that, that these things are good and profitable. That they're breathed out by God. So they're not just words that people wrote to somebody else, but that God is ultimately in that writing process somehow. That these words are, as scholars would later call them, Inspired that God inspires these authors to write these things. And they wouldn't have been written in a book, by the way. Uh, you think of books because you live now, but back then, books wouldn't have been books. They probably would have been scrolls. Um, 
And scrolls had to be handwritten. So you probably didn't have a lot of scrolls. They would have been something you would be protected. So often, uh, this, is a, this is a Torah. So this is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. And you probably would have had some kind of cover for it, right? And then um, something to kind of hold it together. And it would be on these two scrolls. And you can see how you would have to unroll it. And if you wanted to turn the page, you'd have to kind of roll both of them to keep it moving the right direction. Um, So a lot of the writings would have been on scrolls like this and not really in books. You might find books. They they did some of that. But a lot of the early writings would have been on scrolls. Spike, you can go to the next slide. Most of the, the uh, words that we know of in the scriptures, or most of the scriptures in the early church, uh, end up getting translated into Latin. And that's how they're preserved. It's not till about the 300s that the New Testament is really kind of agreed upon as to what's going to be in the New Testament. Again, it was just a bunch of letters and a bunch of comments that important people wrote about the stories. And they got preserved. And eventually they said, you know what? We need to, we need to figure out what are going to be the books. And so they decide on what we currently have as the New Testament. Uh, but most of, people, most of the people by then were reading it in Latin, not in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, this continued for a long time in the, until the medieval church. In the medieval church, uh, all the Bibles were in Latin. It's really the Eastern church, church, like the Eastern Orthodox church, that preserves the Greek and Hebrew. Uh, by the Middle Ages, all you can find is Latin. They don't have even copies of the Greek or the Hebrew anymore. It was the church's position that only the church could interpret Scripture. Priests and bishops held total sway of how you could read the Bible. In fact, most people couldn't read. If you could read, it'd have to be a Bible that was in Latin. So not only did you have to be able to read, you had to be able to read Latin. And then you had to have a hand-copied version of it that would have been very expensive. Whole communities might only have one, and there might only be one or two people in the whole community that can read that text. Okay, when Martin Luther comes along, most priests are not reading the Bible. They can't read the Bible. They've never been trained in how to do that. Uh, No wonder some of the theology gets kind of goofy. Some of the things people believe get kind of goofy. Although some of the stories really are preserved, but they're preserved a lot in the architecture, in the the artwork of the church, uh, in stained glass windows. That's how you learned. That was your Bible. You came into the building, and the building was your Bible. Okay, then you looked around and you saw the stained glass windows, and you that's how you learned the stories. And then even the Bibles that were handwritten were often, um, often very beautiful works of art. This is a copy. This is a, a copy of what's called the Winchester Bible. It's about a 12th century Bible, and you can see it's in Latin. Um, but if you look along the sides, you'll see all kinds of beautiful pictures. Some of the best artwork of the Middle Ages is found on Bibles like this Winchester Bible. Um, where people would, would not only copy the text, but try to make it really beautiful to tell the stories. That way, you, if you had somebody who couldn't read, you could still turn to the book and have the beautiful pictures to kind of teach them. It's kind of the PowerPoint of the Middle Ages, the beauty that you had in your Bible. There were early attempts to try to think of the Bible in terms of uh, common language. There was a guy named John Wycliffe. 
um, who wrote uh, a version of the Bible in the 1300s. Uh, it's in very old English. It would be very hard for you to read now, even though it is in English. He suffered a stroke in 384. We have Wycliffe? There he is. I love the beards of these guys, right? Um, Wycliffe died, suffered what was probably a stroke in 1384, uh, having put together at least most of the New Testament and a good portion of the Old Testament. In 1415, for all his efforts to try to d- develop the Bible in English, he was declared a heretic. And his body was dug up out of a holy seminary, a cemetery, and his body was burned. I mean, this is um, 30, 40 years after his death. Burned and spread out in a local river because he was declared a heretic. He wasn't allowed to stay in the holy cemetery at the church. This all changes, though, by a man named Johannes Gutenberg. You know the name Gutenberg? Okay, we got Gutenberg here. Gutenberg. Gutenberg is famous because in 1456, he invented the movable type printing press. So all of a sudden, instead of having to write everything out by hand... Gutenberg changes, I mean, he changes the world when he starts saying, okay, we can print stuff. We can make something one time and then copy it onto a page and copy it again and again and again. We can bind it in a book. And, and Gutenberg changes the world because suddenly because information is so accessible, information starts to multiply. I mean, the only thing in history that we can see does anything like this is probably the Internet. The Internet has done a lot of the same thing. Because information is so accessible, information starts multiplying because people have more access to it. Now, what did, he, what did he print a lot of? The Bible. The Gutenberg Bible. Um, this is a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. It's a page of the Gutenberg Bible here. Um, again, he keeps up the kind of medieval tradition of, of the beauty. And he would do that. Uh, he figured that out real quick. You could print one color and then print another color on top of it. And so... Uh, but, but what was the Bible at that day? It was Latin. So this is Latin. So he's printing it, but you still don't have that many people that can read it. But there's a growing number of people that want to read it because they now have it. You can now get it. It's a lot cheaper than a handwritten copy of the Bible. And so Gutenberg kind of changes this with the Latin Bible. Another thing that happens around this time, you can switch to Erasmus here. Um, I told you that the Eastern Church they sort of kept the Greek and Hebrew Bibles. Um, so they had a lot of the Greek and Hebrew resources. In 1453, the Turks took over Constantinople. And a lot of those Eastern books, to, a lot of them were destroyed, but a lot of the ones that weren't destroyed were taken into Europe so that they could be saved. And so what you had in the years following the fall of Constantinople was a bunch of Greek and Hebrew resources that the church hadn't seen in a thousand years, 800 years or so, all of a sudden flooding in. And suddenly they started to look at these Latin words that were translated and say, oh no, the Greek word is a little bit different. It could be translated this way. So you get a lot of this work all of a sudden in Greek and Hebrew that you never had access to before, except in very small circles. One of the main figures in that is a guy named Erasmus, who never had a beard, I don't think, because his pictures are always clean-shaven. Um, he was a Catholic man who um, got into a lot of arguments with Martin Luther, um, but uh, he wanted to see the church changed, and he wanted to see the church get a better understanding of the Bible, and he did a lot of the groundwork in Greek, and especially in Greek, uh, but also kind of helped pursue Hebrew 
so that uh, it would open the door to more and more people understanding the Bible better. So in 1516, he gets a Greek New Testament. Uh, and, and that's really the first time you get published a Greek New Testament. Now the Bible is really opening up to people because they can understand it in new and different ways. Uh, if you go to the next slide, this is the big guy of the, of the Reformation, Martin Luther, who in 1517, 499 years ago, nailed 95 theses to the wall of the church at Wittenberg, kind of declaring support theology of the church. And where had that support theology come from? A lot of that had come from the fact that most priests did not know and could not read the Bible. In fact, he, that was his personal story. Luther had been a guy who was scared of God, wanted to stay away from God. And then finally, one of his superiors sent him to school so that he could learn to read the Bible for himself. And Luther got into the Bible and said, look, I'm reading all this stuff about grace and about love. And so Luther himself is changed by his reading of the scripture. And his idea is that's what everybody needs. That's what the church needs. Luther is excommunicated in 521. Uh, He should have been killed, but he is instead kidnapped by some of the people that are loyal to him. And they stow him away in the Wartburg Castle in Germany. And so Luther starts to work. He he can't go out. He can't preach. So what he does is he takes Erasmus' Greek New Testament and in Latin and all the other resources that he has with him. And he starts to try to translate the Bible into German. Common German. And by 1522, he's really worked on the New Testament. Luther was a guy who did not mess around. He got stuff done. And by 1534, the complete Bible was written in the German vernacular with the help of some other people. This Bible changed so much um, of the German people, brought the German people together, gave them a freedom from Rome, uh, also changed the German language, um, gave Germans the sense of writing and the sense of academia that continued in Germany. Luther said this, he said, I endeavored to make Moses so German that no one would suspect he was a Jew. I mean, this is radical. The idea that you could try to make the Bible make so much sense to people, they would forget that this person was Jewish and lived 2,000, 3,000 years ago, and instead, they would read it as their own book in their own language. But that's what he wanted to do. That's what he wanted to do. And what adds to this? I mean, Luther might not be nothing, except Gutenberg invented that printing press. And so all of a sudden, when when he finishes his New Testament and when he finishes the Bible, it can get printed. And lots and lots of people begin to learn how to read so that they can read a Bible that now all of a sudden they can afford and have access to. Next guy is William uh, William Tyndale. Tyndale is a guy who was in England and uh, he spoke out against King Henry VIII. Remember the story of King Henry VIII and all his divorces he was trying to get? He spoke out and he ended up in exile in Belgium. Um, Part of why he was also exiled was because he wanted to make an English Bible. I mean, Tyndale was obsessed with it. He was in exile in Belgium as he finished that work. He was condemned of heresy and was in fact um, captured, turned over to the authorities and burned at the stake. Primarily because he wanted an English Bible. And they weren't going to put up with such nonsense. Wycliffe 
or Tyndale was burned at the stake because he believed you ought to be able to read the Bible. Someone stood up for him, and they did, in fact, strangle him before they burned him. That was helpful, wasn't it? But a very dark time. That's how much he believed that people ought to be able to read the Bible in their own language. Tyndale's Bible sticks around, though. They don't quite get rid of it. It ends up being very influential. Uh, another Bible printed in 1560 is the Geneva Bible. Um, so... Uh, you can see a big, I made it big up there, a page of the Geneva Bible. Um, it was printed in 1560. Let's see, this is a 1569. This is an actual page I got on eBay. Uh, a book from the book of Genesis from the 1569 Geneva Bible. Okay, so the Geneva Bible, very important, because um, it's translated into English, and it becomes the Bible of the Presbyterians, Okay. John Knox and all of that crew, all of our history comes out of the Geneva Bible. Um, All this stuff will be up here. You can look at it uh, when we're done. The Geneva Bible became the Bible of the Presbyterians. And there there were others. There were a number of other kind of English versions that were cropping up. And finally, there was a lot of division over all these people uh, and all these different versions of the Bible. There's a lot of fighting going on in the Church of England as they had pulled away from the Catholic Church, not for real religious reasons. Remember the whole King Henry VIII thing. He didn't want the authority of, uh, of Rome, so he wanted his own thing. And so King James I, finally at the end of all these tensions, decided that the Anglican Church needed its own version of the Bible. The King James Version. Um, if you Scholars have looked back and they figured out the King James Version... Uh, the New Testament uh, is about 83% the Tyndale Bible. So the Tyndale who had died, had been killed for having a Bible. His Bible was very influential. The, the Old Testament, about 76%, is the Tyndale Bible. Um, here's the title page. Here's a copy of the title page uh, of the King James Bible. Um, and so it had some artwork, but it was a little more simple. It was written in English. It becomes hugely important for the English language. Okay, a whole bunch of phrases that you know in English uh, come because of um, this book. Uh, it's very influential also on, uh, on a guy named William Shakespeare, who takes the English language even further. Um, you get the phrase, we get a, the phrase, fall flat on your face from Numbers 22. Escape by the skin of my teeth from Job 19. Pride goes before a fall, that's from Proverbs 6. And a lot of English phrases that you use to this day were written in the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. Uh, one of the phrases people say, because it used to be the debate, you could only, you remember when you could only, that was the only version for a long time. Even as a kid, I learned a lot of verses in the King James Version. We used to say, yeah, King James Version, 1611 straight out of heaven. That's what everybody thought. That was the version, right? Um, but King James Bible very, very influential on the English language, not just on the Bible. Since then, uh, you can skip. There you go. Since then, people have continued to translate the Bible into English um, because the Bible is, is difficult sometimes to translate. Take Matthew chapter 1. In the Greek, it says, Mary discovered that she was having in belly. That's literally what the Greek says, having in belly. Uh, this is a Greek idiom meaning to be pregnant. So the question is, when you go to translate that in English, 
Do you leave it as having in belly? Or do you make it pregnant? If you're going to translate it, if you want to go word for word, you need to keep the text exactly where the Greek says it, which says having in belly. But if you want people to understand a little more, you've got to understand that's an idiom meaning pregnant, right? Psalm chapter 12, verse 2. Wicked people seek with heart and a heart. Sometimes it's translated as a double heart. It means to be deceitful. Um, similar to the way we call people two-faced. You know, they, they give you one face, but they're hiding another face. Uh, how do you translate that in Hebrew? With a heart and a heart. Do you go literal? Word for word? Do you try to get the phrase right? And so all kinds of people have tried to make those decisions. So some Bibles tend to be literal word for word. King James was like this. The New American Standard. Um, the Revised Standard, the RSV, and the English Standard, which is what I normally read, which is very, very similar with just a couple amendments. Um, those are all more word for word. You can get more phrase for phrase. Some of you might have read the Living Bible, the New Living Translation, or the Message. Those, those kind of take a lot of freedom to try to get the meaning of the text expressed rather than the words of the text. Uh, some are somewhere in the middle. If you've read the New International Version, that's a very popular version because it's the very middle of the road Bible. Um, in fact, it's a little bit politically correct sometimes. It's so middle of the road. Um, the Jerusalem Bible, Holy and Christian Standard are like that too. So we continue to get English translations. If you go to a bookstore, you'll see a bunch of different ones. Uh, translations are not just happening in English. Go to the next one, Spike. Uh, there's a group called the Wycliffe Bible Translators, named after Wycliffe. And now you know his story. Um, who have been translating the Bible into all kinds of languages. The Bible has now been translated into 2,000, more than 2,400 of the languages in the world. Um, there's about 6,900 languages. Uh, many of these translators can't just translate the Bible into the language. There are a lot of places where there is no written language to go along with a spoken language. Um, so I'm a big fan of the story of Rachel Saint and the, Elizabeth Elliot and the five missionaries that were killed by the Wadani tribe. Uh, Rachel Saint, this is a little uh, copy of a page that she started to write the gospel in the Wadani language. There was no written language. She had to invent the writing, the alphabet, how to pronounce the words, how to spell the word, so that she could give them a New Testament. I mean, imagine the work that that is. And that work, by the way, that's still going on in countries to this day. If you look up Wycliffe Bible Translators, you can go on and support missionaries who are over in other countries continuing that work. Continuing that work. To this day, people are still giving their lives for people to be able to read the Bible in English. So, next slide. Think about the Bible on your shelf. People gave their careers their time, and sometimes their very lives to give you that book. People are still working today to get that privilege of reading the Bible in your own language to people around the world that still don't have it. People thought you should have access to God's word. People believe these words of Paul, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. On your shelf, in your hands, on your phone, in these pews, there's this book that God gave you, a love letter to you, that people worked tirelessly 
to make sure you had access to be able to read so that you would be a complete person. My question for you today is, when's the last time you picked up that book? When's the last time it was the book in your hands? Or for too many of us, is it sitting on the shelf getting dusty? Let me tell you how to get started with the Bible. Pick a book and read it multiple times. I think the Gospels are a good place to start. You can use my sermons to try to look up some of these verses later. Just take notes. Uh, some of you, I, I know with this church, we got a lot of people who use the daily bread. I, I, if you use the daily bread already, I would say use it more. Okay, you, you read the text for the day, but what's the context? What's the rest of that book say? Um, use it to get into it. Talked about how there's multiple translations. Get multiple translations. Get one that's really word for word. Get one that's really, loose, uh, that's really loose and phrase by phrase. And compare them and see what they say differently. You'd be amazed how much better you're going to open, you, you're going to understand scriptures when you start getting two different translations in front of you. It's much easier to read that way. Get a good study Bible, a Bible that um, gives you some hints and some guides and some notes at the bottom. And trust the Holy Spirit, because I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit guided this whole process. The same Holy Spirit that inspired these authors, protected it and brought it to you in English. And it's the same Holy Spirit that sits with you when you sit at the table and start reading it. Is it challenging? Yeah. Yes, yeah, challenging. It's not easy, particularly if you haven't done it a lot. But it's worth the effort. Because there's a lot of valuable insight and a lot of valuable faith to be gained from picking up that book. Just remember how many people gave their lives for you to have that privilege. Pick it up. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we do have a Bible. Forgive us that we don't always use it as we could and as we should. Let it be our story. Let it be our book, we pray. Amen.